Today, you have a chance to become a premium member of the podcast. Click one of the premium membership levels and you can get everything from a free book by an ag arts artist to free postcards to extra bonus interviews to the chance to have a piece of writing critiqued by me and a free workshop or reading by Mary Swander. So go to those show notes, scroll down and click to become a premium member. Thank you so much for your support. Angela Tedesco, author of the new book, Finding Turtle Farm, dared to use the O word. She received a master's degree in horticulture at Iowa State University in the 1990s. And there at that time, the O word stood for organic, and it was relegated to the lunatic fringe in the agricultural world. Angela didn't let the discouragement of her professors stop her. She went on to become a pioneer, establishing one of the first CSAs, or community-supported agricultural farms in Iowa, supplying a bounty of organic vegetables to customers in the Des Moines area. Today, we're visiting with Angela Tedesco about her 15-year journey of owning and running a CSA farm. She documents it in her new book, Finding Turtle Farm. Welcome, Angela. Thank you, Mary. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, yeah. No, I totally enjoyed this book. You know, I've been in on it from the ground level on up. And this time through reading it, though, it was, it was so fun to read it from chapter one through the recipes because I got the big sweep of your life as a farmer with all the issues that are out there for farmers from beginning farmer land access through farmland transition. And you had kind of an accelerated process where you did that all in a concentrated number of years. But it's all, it's all the same, it's all the same, they're all the same issues that every farmer has. So I enjoyed that. So let's um, talk about how you got interested in setting up a CSA in Iowa, in the times when there were no CSAs, you grew up on a farm in Oklahoma, correct? Correct. And that's where I like to say I learned what good food tastes like because we were a family of seven, five children, and we always had a big garden to help feed us. And I was my mother's helper for helping harvest that. My father would plant it all. So I didn't get in on that. I never learned how to drive a tractor, which I should have the only sibling who didn't learn how. Um, but I learned how to harvest, put up food, how to cook it, how to eat it. It was delicious. And I didn't really appreciate that until I left home, you know, went to college and, you know, got married and was, you know, eating from the regular grocery stores and 
know, after a while, it was like, you know, this just doesn't taste the same. It's not what I remember. And so after several diversions of, of uh, working in chemistry research labs, because my degree was in chemistry, and then raising our two daughters, I got to be a stay-at-home mom. And then I was religious education director at our church for a few years. So I felt like the pendulum swung from science to religion and wound it up in the middle on the farm. And it employs a little bit of both of those. Uh, so I decided to go back to school and do something with plants because that was calling to me. And so I went back and got my master's in horticulture. And while I was doing that, I got connected with some people in Ames who were starting to do some interesting local food uh, development. And I ran off to an organic farming conference up in Cincinnati Mound, Wisconsin. And I went up there sometimes, and sometimes I couldn't move because of the schoolwork, and I'd get these recordings from there, which was a really novel idea back then. You could get it by the recording. And one of them was on community-supported agriculture. And I just was immediately taken by it because of the cooperative um, method of providing food for people. You do it by way of relationships between you and your customer. They support you with uh, financially by paying up front for their food. I support them with the food, but the third party in that community-supported agriculture formula, the third party is the earth, all the creatures, all the community of microbes in the soil, of insects, of birds, of even the mammals that were all a part of making it a success too. So I think of it as a big triangle of community-supported agriculture. We were all supporting each other. And you created really with your customers and the surrounding community an educational center. I mean, you educated people on what food was, uh, how it grows, um, what are all of those critters doing out there scurrying around and, you know, why aren't you killing them? And um, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, almost immediately I found out that people didn't always know what their vegetables were that I was providing. It was having such great fun trying to grow a wide variety of things. So there was a full box every week from, you know, May through usually the 1st of October, it was over. It was so much fun, but I learned they sometimes didn't know what these vegetables were, even though I would write a newsletter every week and tell them what's in their box. I would tell them something about the farm adventures or what was going on at the farm in the column. And then I would provide recipes to help them if they didn't know what to do with their kohlrabi or their eggplant, or if they hated beets. So I tried to give them, you know, new ideas other than canned beets that they may have had as a child to try out and find out how delicious they could really be. Well, people aren't used to eating seasonally. And so that's a big part of CSAs um, is that you get usually a bag or a cooler full of food a week, and it's what's harvested that week. So if you want, you know, strawberries in December, you're out of luck. 
And, <laughs> and, you know, there's so many recipes that, you know, I look at them and I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. You know, you, you, you know, they'll give you like spring ingredients mixed in with fall squash, you know, and I'm like, I can't do that. But most people are so used to going to a grocery store and just like picking up all that stuff and they don't have any thought of, you know, the fact that it was shipped in from who knows where and they put it all together. And in a CSA, the customers experience the farm the way the farmer does with what crops are coming ripe now, how do we harvest them, and then you provided this extra bonus of how we cook them. In the back of your book is the most wonderful little cookbook. I'm like, hey, this is so cool. I'm so glad that uh, your publisher sent me four copies of your book because I'm, I'm putting, I've got one copy in my office downtown. I got one copy on my bookshelf at home under, you know, garden and farming literature. And then I've got one copy in my kitchen area for my cookbooks that, you know, and the other one I've got, I'm going to put in my window here in my little, you know, sunny downtown Kelowna office. And, um, so you're doing all of those things for people, but you we're living in the city, essentially, and you had to go out and find a piece of land to do all of this on. So how'd that come down? Right. We live in Johnston, Iowa on three acres, but two of the three acres are either woods or driveway. And, you know, it supports a family garden, but nothing for farming purposes. So we did begin looking for land. And that took a while because I was full of farms of 100, 500, 1,000 acres, and you don't need that much to grow vegetables on. I um, looked high and low. We looked for about three years with the realtor. Finally uh, found a property for sale in Granger, Iowa, right across the highway from Granger, and it was 99 acres for sale. And I thought, well, Maybe they would chop off, you know, 20 acres or 40 acres or whatever and not have to buy the whole 99. Plus, since it was on a highway, it had development potential. So the price was already a little more expensive anyway than just farmland out in the middle of nowhere. So we made that offer and they took it. And so that's how I got 20 acres to play with. So that was an adventure in itself. Luckily, my husband was very supportive all along the way. I mean, he had a job supporting us to begin with so I didn't have to do this for to make money but certainly wanted to to show it as a viable option for farmers in Iowa yeah so you had I mean you had that family support um I assume he had health insurance this is all the things that my beginning farmers that I've interviewed you know are bashing around trying to figure out unless you inherit a farm it's really, really hard, as you say, to find land in the first place and then to have the capital to get it going. Right. Anything, anything close to an urban area, of course, is more expensive. And we live in an urban area close to on the edge of Des Moines. And so, you know, right off the bat, you know, the properties are quite expensive. But, you know, um, most conventional farmers out there have off-farm jobs. And that's where they're getting theirs insurance and all those things too so it's not like this is something new but we would like to be able to support a farmer just for farming it would be nice right so 
you got your land and it was uh, had been in conventional farming corn and beans, and you then had to go through the process of converting it to organic, and uh, that's a, a concept that's hard for people to wrap their heads around too. Like they think, oh, organic, you just don't spray it or whatever, but it's not that easy. Could you explain what that all entails? Well, first of all, if you're a CSA farmer and you know your customers and they know you, there's a lot of transparency there. They can come visit the farm. You don't necessarily have to go out and get certified organic, even if you're using organic practices, which most CSA farmers do, not all, but most. But I decided, you know, I want people to be able to find me future customers. And that might be one way that they would do that by looking up organic directories, looking for organic food. So I did choose to become certified. So with the new farm, we had to wait the three years. As you mentioned, we had to have a, a 15, 30-foot buffer around me that didn't qualify to be organic because it, if it were touching ground that wasn't organic, which it was in my case, there were farmers around me that were not organic. But you have to list everything from you know having your water tested every year, you detail everything from what you're harvesting into and how you're storing the crops, whether they're refrigerated or whether they're, you know, dry air. You have to talk about your fertility methods, what you're putting on them, everything. There are sprays you can use as an organic farmer, but they have to be approved by your certifier. So anything new came along or some new idea that people were promoting saying, oh, try this. Well, you wanted to call up your certifier and say, can I do this? And have that approved. Otherwise, if you willy-nilly just chose something, it might not uh, be approved. I, I found that in one instance because when I did my research at Iowa State University for my master's program, I compared production systems for strawberries, and two of them were organic and two of them weren't. And one of the fertility uh, materials that I used was corn gluten meal, which had been discovered by one of the horticulture professors that it had these amazing properties that not only was it 10% nitrogen, but it prohibited seeds from germinating. So those are two great qualities to have in a, something you put on your crops. So I, is that like a pre-emergent? Right. Almost like a pre-emergent. Yeah. So, you know, you, you wouldn't want to use it where you're putting down you know, radish seeds, but to use it on strawberries, my perennial crops, raspberries, or things that were already up and growing, you could. So I ran that by my certifier and she researched it and she came back and said, no, you can't use that. And the reason was because there was a solvent or something used in the processing of the corn gluten meal that was not approved. So therefore the whole entire product wasn't. So, you know, you had to be careful. You had to be careful about what you put on your farm. You wanted it to be good for the soil and, you know, meet the guidelines and all that so you can get certified. What about what what about in this process of transitioning to organic? What happens in the soil when it starts to, you know, become organic? The there's a whole life underneath the layer of earth that most people don't know about or don't think about. We think about dirt is like, okay, we got to get the end loader in there and scoop it out so we can pour a 
basement, you know, to make a McMansion. And um, you have a horrifying description of that in your book and how people just dump soil here and there. But what? tell, tell us what's really going on underneath garden bed, like that farm bed. Well, uh, it depends on how you're treating it. You know, this land we had had been treated with, um, you know, the ammonium that they put down in the uh, on most conventional farms. And that will kill the soil life in that area. And soil life is important because you have things like microbes and bacteria that are breaking down organic matter in the soil and releasing nutrients that the plants can then take up. Also, things like earthworms, which might be killed in the vicinity of where these applications go down. If they're allowed to thrive, then they are very helpful for chewing up some of that organic matter too. And and worm castings are wonderful things to put on your farm. Another thing is that, you know, they make holes in the soil so that rainwater can permeate through the soil profile. So there's all kinds of things going on you don't think about. And we noticed the first year we were farming how few earthworms we found and all the hand digging we're doing of potatoes, we found less than five earthworms the entire season. And then in a few years later, without you know harsh chemicals being put down, we would find maybe that many in every shovel full of dirt you would dig up. So that was the most obvious sign i didn't you know have the equipment to measure the soil biota of all kinds but the earthworms were a good sign yeah and um you mentioned that um you were the scientist you were also a religious education director and i found this chapter called food as sacred to be very interesting i wonder do you have a do you have a book right there with you near you yeah. yeah. Turn to page 39, if you would. And I'd like you just to read a paragraph, the paragraph that's the first full paragraph on page 39. Simply put, we take our food okay. for granted. Simply put, we take our food for granted. Just like the water that comes through our tap from some unseen source, our grocery stores bulge with edibles disconnected from their origins. There are many things that we're disconnected from in our lives. We pump gas without remembering the journey it has taken from the depths of earth to a refinery, across an ocean or a continent. Sidewalks keep us separate from the earth's crust. It is remarkable that we can live in cocoons all our lives without even touching the soil that nurtures the food we eat. But can a shrink-wrapped life really sustain us? Ask any child who, given the choice between the shaved nubbin of an unmarketable baby carrot, reduced of its nutritionally rich skin and found in a plastic bag in the grocery store, and a carrot that they have planted and pulled from the garden by its green frilly leaves and stems, washed and eaten on the spot, ask that child which is more full of life-giving force. Unless he or she has been taught to fear dirt and the out of doors, it's no contest. And once that connection is made, there's no going back. They've discovered the sacred. It, the, your story is finding the sacred in that dirt that is growing 
those things. And I think it's really interesting when you're working a CSA, you don't just specialize in one or two crops. There's no monocropping here. <laughs> you describe what an average CSA bag would have in it, the different kinds of vegetables. Say, let's take, let's take now August. What would we find in our bag? Oh, in August, well, I can couch my own garden now. You would be finding, by August, you're getting tomatoes in Iowa. You have to usually wait until August. And you're also getting the other hot weather crops like peppers, maybe an eggplant, uh, summer squashes. You're getting probably green beans. No, now you're not going to be getting your lettuces, but you might be getting onions that have been uh, harvested. They aren't the early spring onions, but the storage onions. Garlic should be dried by now, harvested and dried. Um, Why well, I'm thinking through my refrigerator now. <laughs> <laughs> you will. I I still get broccoli because you can take cuttings of it. I mean, normally you get that in late June or July, but if you cut it way down, you can get side shoots and you can harvest those into August. And even uh, things like uh, collard greens, you might be getting cabbages might be carrying over until now. So I don't know. And basil, don't forget the herbs. Basil is very prolific in August. Make that pesto while you can. And there are other herbs too. I provided some herbs, not a lot, but you know, thyme, marjoram, basil, oregano, cilantro in the spring, some of those common ones. So so we're up to about 20 crops oh, oh. Right, right in August. That's <laughs> that just doesn't even cover the varieties. Like I would probably grow 20 varieties of tomatoes. So you never knew which kind you were going to get, green, yellow, red, or some of all. Okay. So you're constantly having to juggle all of these crops and all the pests that come with the crops. And you, in horticulture school, you had a course um, in beneficial insect control that you said gave you fits, but it was really one of the most useful courses. And there's this great scene in the book where your okra is getting attacked. And can you describe what <laughs> what happens? You, now, for the listeners, she... she can't spray with any regular pesticides or anything. And so using a beneficial insect technique, you use insects to eat other insects and to enhance um, the growth of your plants. So tell us about your okra. All right, that biological control class was very helpful. Opened my eyes because I haven't had an undergraduate entomology class. So this was, you know, all new to me. It was a little overwhelming, but I learned a lot. And on the farm, it became useful because one of the things I learned that in order to have the beneficial insects, you need to have a pest presence. Otherwise, the beneficial can't survive if they're relying on the pest as their food. And they might not just eat the pest. They might deposit their eggs in the pest. You know, it's called parasitize them. So there's all different ways of, uh, that they can be beneficial and help you out in the garden. So in several years, uh, I had this problem in okra that these black aphids would come and they would be on the underside of the leaves and just sucking the life out of those poor okra plants. They were just trying to get established. 
And they would look kind of sad. And one of my workers came to me and said, Angela, the aphids are on the okra. Do you want me to spray with something? Because we do have some sprays you can use. And I had seen this problem before. And I knew that if we just waited, were patient, that the cavalry might arrive. And so that's what we did. We waited and we'd go check on it. And the plants still weren't very happy for a while. But we started seeing ladybugs on the underside of the leaves. Ladybugs love aphids. But what loves aphids even more than ladybugs, the beetles we all know and love, are the ladybug larvae, which don't look anything like their parents. They look like little ugly black and orange alligators. But don't you kill those little boogers because they eat probably 10 times as many aphids as the beetles do. So we left them alone to their work and the aphids went away and the okra thrived. And that's why I say there's a bug on your plate. If you're getting this okra, it's because there were bugs helping us out. So <laughs> That's right. That's right. The cavalry came to your rescue. If, if people don't know what that ladybug larvae looks like, you should look it up, Google it, so that you will know when you see one and you will protect it and not harm it. Right. And what about tomato hornworms? Most people freak out when they see those, but uh, you had a different experience. Yeah. Even my chickens won't eat lady, these uh, tomato hornworms. I'd throw them down to them and they'd go, <laughs> they would run away. <laughs> but there's a really interesting beneficial insect that if you have a backyard garden, is really helpful. To, if you ever find the tomato hornworms in your garden and they have these little what look like little cocoons or little pillows on their back little white cocoons don't kill that hornworm that hornworm is not going to move anymore they have been parasitized by beneficial um the parasitic wasp that has laid her eggs inside the hornworm they have hatched eaten a little bit of the innards and then spun those little cocoons for their larvae. And then you, if you go back later on and look, you will see those little cocoons have been zipped open and the larvae have escaped. And so once you find a hornworm with those on it, they won't move. They usually stay in the same place. They're much more visible when they have these white larvae on them than when before. I noticed in my own backyard garden this year that the first wave of hornworms, I didn't see them. I handpicked all the hornworms. I didn't kill them because I was afraid they hadn't parasitized and just, you know, they weren't to the larva uh, cocoon stage. So I would carry them off away from the garden and hope that, you know, they didn't make it back. But by the time the second hatch of uh, tomato hornworms came back, I hadn't even noticed the hornworms until I saw the little cocoons making them visible. And, oh, there they are. And oh, they've been parasitized. Look what happens when you just let them be. So we didn't see them on a large scale at the farm. I, I brought a hornworm home to my garden, hoping it would get parasitized. And then I would take it back to the farm, but I lost it. I couldn't find it again. But eventually we would see them at the farm too. So, <laughs> so you were running your own experiments out there. And you were also webbed into um, Practical Farmers of Iowa and a lot of different networks that you found great support. And you were doing research for Practical Farmers of Iowa, were you? I was. That's a wonderful thing about Practical Farmers of Iowa. It's like, is there any research you want to do? It's like, what? 
I get to decide because before that, you know, it's the university professors that say, well, we'd like to come to your farm and do this experiment. And uh, there's a happy union there. There are some wonderful professors that come through PFI and PFI will uh, pay us to do uh, the research. The professors will send out helpers to sometimes, uh, you know, plant the plants, sometimes record the data. It depends. So I had a number of years of doing those kind of experiments that were very useful for me. I wouldn't have done them if they hadn't been useful for me. They were useful for my farm and uh, for the professors as well. So it was a learning process. I enjoyed having them come and help me learn more about my farm too. Uh, that. That's a great cooperative organization. And then you had help from the Leopold Center um, at Iowa State, Women, Food, and Agriculture Network, um, Trees Forever. Yeah. Some of them were grants that I received. Or some of them were just organizations you're a member of and you network with the other people there who were the vegetable farmers. And you'd even learn something from the row crop farmers if you attended one of their sessions once in a while. I didn't think I would, but I learned a few things from them. And hopefully they learned a few things from the vegetable growers too. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good mix. You even established a children's garden at on your farm. Tell us about that. Well, we had two experiences with that. First, we had our customers uh, were kind of interested. And so most of my customers lived in Des Moines, which was 20 miles away, which is pretty close for a CSA, but still for them to come out and tend those little gardens, you know, it just didn't happen on a regular enough basis. And they, you know, the vegetables wouldn't get picked or they get overgrown with weeds or whatever. So that wasn't really a big success. But in the town of Granger, there was a preschool associated with the Catholic school there that came over and asked if they could have a garden. I thought, well, this might work because they're close. They can come over and it's a little more organized by the teachers. And so we did that and it was fun. We gave them some uh, transplants to put in. And I remember the day we were planting those, I'd given them some Brussels sprouts as a, a uh, crop to grow. And one father said to me, he said, what's a Brussels sprout? He never even heard of it. Let alone eating it. So <laughs> the education process was continuous. <laughs> But the, that worked out better, and the kids would come over, and you know, it wasn't a, a large garden by any means, but they certainly had the experience. They had to come and tend that garden; they had to come water it because we didn't do that for them, and uh, so that that worked out well. Oh, that's great! So that garden survived, and it su yes. survived all the wildlife that was out there. I was impressed by the the amount of wildlife that was hanging out at your farm. Well, yeah. Well, there's the usual deer that hang out. And we one day I went to harvest, this fairly early on in my years, I went to harvest a beautiful lettuce crop and I went out there to pick it. And the hearts had been eaten out of each of the lettuce. And it was like, oh my gosh, I didn't I hadn't even noticed it from a distance. So we were a little slim on the lettuce that week, slimmer than I had planned. So uh, we would work by putting bird netting over lettuce and beets and charge which were the deer's favorite crops and uh, you know i found out that there were coyotes there in the evening once i stayed late to uh, talk and visit with a beekeeper and heard the coyotes howling in the distance and that's why i believe we didn't have problems with the rabbits uh, 
until the housing development came in next door and then the coyotes were not as prevalent. And so we found out the rabbits like to hide in my weeds. So we'd have to mow those weeds or anything so that they would not have hiding places for the few times the coyotes might still come. There were lots of birds. Birds are so important because they have to feed a zillion caterpillars to their babies. So they're helping us out with the insects. So you had a, um, really a balance of the ecosystem there. You can see when one thing gets thrown off, then other thing, you know, housing development right. comes in, coyotes go out, right? rabbits come in. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a right. dance. It's a balance. And snakes, you know. Some people can't stand the sound of a snake, and their first instinct, they want to kill it. And it's like, wait, do you prefer a snake or a mouse in your house? A snake in the yard or a mouse in your house? They are prolific mice eaters. And, of course, mice can be good, too. They can eat weed seeds in the winter if you leave some of your weeds about. Uh, so, you know, like you say, Mary, that balance is, is important. But the, the snakes were our friends on the farm for eating them eating the mice. Ben is my favorite character besides you in the book. He's your comrade there uh, helping on the, on the farm. And uh, there's a great scene where he actually picks up the snake that had gotten caught in the net. And, you know, right. you know, I know he's a big guy and I can just imagine this big, <laughs> this big bull snake in his hands. Uh, okay, go at him. <laughs> That's right. He was, it, well, that was the bad part about using the bird netting to keep out the deer. Well, the snakes would think they could go through it. Snakes have no self-body awareness. They could get their head through something. They think the whole body can go. But that wasn't true for the uh, bird netting. They would get stuck. And we would feel really bad if we killed a snake and, you know, accidentally from that. So if we found when we tried to go and walk those rows that had bird netting every day so that if there was a snake caught in it, we could release them before they died. And in this one instance, I was going to harvest chard and there was a snake caught in the bird netting over the chard. So I went to get Ben, who's my employee, and said, Ben, can you help me get this snake out of the bird netting? So he came over with the pruners and he's holding the snake and cutting and I'm holding the bird netting real tight so he'll have you know the ability to cut it. And the most amazing thing happened as we were doing it. He was cutting down to the last web to cut to loosen that snake. And the snake started convulsing and opened its mouth wide. Its teeth, you know, were fangs were bared and its the middle of its mouth was cottony pink. And all of a sudden it's throwing up this brown object. And Ben and I stand back because we thought it was going to bite us. We stood back and saw this brown thing come dislodged out of the snake. And we looked at it. And this little brown thing was a mouse partially decomposed. And we thought, oh, my gosh, she's just thrown up a mouse. And then she started convulsing again as we were holding her. And out comes another mouse. And this one was a little more digested. It's a little, little uh, harder to perceived but it was indeed a mouse so that poor snake lost its breakfast but i had never seen such visible evidence of how diversity is so important on the farm that's a, it's a great story so you became part of the of the of the farm in many ways but you also had your own healing process on the farm you had a health crisis um, with cancer, and you've got a, just a really unique story about 
uh, you, you develop a metaphor of getting on the train. You, you, you get a diagnosis, then you're on the train for this treatment, and then you're on the train for the next treatment. And how did that progress for you? Well, you know, when you hear the big C word, you know, you, you realize how much you don't know about it, what you would do about it. it you know, my father had had cancer many years before, and back then there wasn't much in the way of treatment. So you trust the doctors are going to give you all the information you need. And part of that was surgery to remove the, the lump. And then the next thing they want you to do is go to radiation therapy. And so I, as you say, I'm on that train at the next stop. And as I'm finishing that, and they want to send you on then to the oncologist for chemotherapy. And it's like, hey, I'm an organic farmer. I don't want to put these chemicals in my body. Now, I'm not saying, you know, that's not important for some people. And in some cases, and I... Not even saying that I might not do it in the right situation, but it was at that point. It's like I want more information, and so I chose to go out to California, where my daughter lived, and see a nature path who looks for more natural ways to heal. And that was very helpful for me, and gave me the courage to step off the train and do some other things for the healing process for me. And it worked as far as I'm concerned and has led me on a, a path of alternative treatments um, for a number of things, cancer not being the only one. And it also led me to compare conventional agriculture to the conventional healthcare system. The people in the, both of those instances want fast results, you know, whether it's a quick dissolving fertilizer or a bug spray, or in the case of, you know, the healthcare industry, uh, a pill to pop or, you know, surgery to do something. So I compared those two to organic agriculture and uh, naturopathic way or functional medicine way, which looks at the symptoms and says, well, let's get to the root of this and then decide what we're going to do. And that's what you would do in organic agriculture. It's what I did on the farm. You know, if I had a bug problem, I said, well, why am I having the bug problem? You know, maybe it wasn't a problem in the case of the okra. Or, you know, if I had another problem with, you know, uh, uh, mildew and squash, I think, well, maybe they're planted too close together. So you look for the cause and go there. And the same with your health, you can treat it the same way. You know, find the cause Find somebody who can help you with that, a functional medicine doctor or lots of reading on your own. I did a lot of reading and look at that first as the, the step to take. So it was interesting to me that those two things uh, kind of compared the way they did. Yeah, that's a really interesting comparison. And then, of course, you know, the more you eat healthy food, the better it will be for your long term health. So they're tied together intricately tied together. Definitely. Yeah. So then you reached the point where you wanted to retire from farming. And then you had the classic problem of farmland transition. And you, again, figured out a unique way to handle that. What was that? Well, I started farming when I was in my mid-40s. So I got a late start. And so 
17 years was enough for my body, and, and I decided to retire. And we had watched the housing development go up on the 79 acres next to us that we didn't buy when we chopped off those 20 acres. And it was very painful to watch them gouge the earth and just treat the soil as they were a commodity. Uh, you know, they would the developers sell off part of the topsoil they take up, and then they put a thin layer back on the lawns. So that whole process, I knew would happen if we sold the farm just to anyone, that it would become development property and a bunch of houses and, you know, this wonderful, magical, spiritual place that I'd come to love wouldn't be there anymore. So we looked for other ways to preserve it. One of the ways we looked at was co-housing, and we spent several years trying to develop that to preserve the farm and have a co-housing development at the top of the hill that would own the farm in common, keep it a farm, and so forth. Because even if I sold the farm to a farmer, he or she might sell it in the future and it would get developed. So I, I thought that was not even necessarily viable because it was on a busy highway and next to the town of Granger. But what uh, co-housing didn't quite catch fire good enough. So what we decided to do was to donate the property to a charitable organization. We sold off the top third of the property, which was the best view and the worst soil. And that enabled us to donate the other two thirds of the farm. And we chose Practical Farmers of Iowa as the, the organization most likely to keep it a farm. And uh, that's what happened. So uh, I was very happy about, about that donation and its future, but I was no longer a farmer because I didn't own farmland anymore. So I have an identity crisis after that. <laughs> so that's a bit of a heartache, but they let you come back there and plant a garden. Is that it? Yeah. If I, uh, we wrote into the agreement that I could go back and, you know, have a plot at the farm as long as I wanted. And I did it for a few years, but now the backyard garden here at my home is big enough that I haven't felt the need lately to do that. Oh, you have a beautiful, beautiful backyard garden, which is a lot to keep up with in and of itself. And then at the end of your book is, as I said, this just lovely, lovely cookbook. And I, I'm telling you, I'm totally into the final part of this book because these recipes are simple. You can make them quickly. You you talk about the fact that you worked all day at the farm and then you got home like 5.30, sometimes 6.37, and you still had to cook. And so you put together these recipes you could that just are delicious that so you can whip up in, you know, 15, 20, 25 minutes. And they're all from seasonal uh, vegetables. And I'm like, oh, finally, someone has done this. What I, for me, <laughs> which I've been trying to figure out my whole life, I go, how am I going to do something quick and easy from what I have on hand? And so Finding Turtle Farm, find the book, Angela Tedesco. Read her adventures in farming from beginning farmer to farmland transition and have a feast with the recipes at the end. Join your local CSA. Angela had one of the first CSAs in the state of Iowa and she is our pioneer in this field. So 
Thank you, Angela. It was great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you, Mary. Thanks so much. I'm putting out a call for critter stories. I want to hear your tales of escaped farm animals, of acrobatic goats, or naughty but nice dogs and cats. Nothing sentimental. Just dramatize the intuition and intelligence of animals. And maybe your sense of humor and smarts, too. Get on our website, agarts.org. Scroll down to the bottom of our homepage and record a short pitch of your story with your contact information. If chosen, you will record your full story and it will be broadcast on a future Buggy Land podcast. There's $50 and a subscription to Plain Interests for the featured storytellers. So, Let's hear from you. AgArts now has a Substack page where you will find print excerpts of these podcasts with bonus photos and other media. Join us there for free or with a little bit of cash to donate to the cause at Mary Swander's Buggyland. Mary Swander, M-A-R-Y-S-W-A-N-D-E-R dot substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. And that brings our episode to an end. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brew Ha Ha Audio Productions in our studios on Main Street in sunny Fremartentown. We had support today and would like to thank the Cinepid Fund, the Iowa Arts Council, the Werner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Calio Levine Fund, and all of you who have sent us individual private donations. We welcome your support. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe and never miss a podcast. Become a member or simply go to our website, agarts.org, and hit that red donation button. See you next time. Brouhaha. Mm-hmm.